Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. This is part two in our talk about asthma. In part one, we covered risk assessment and how to make the diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure you won't be lost if you skip straight to this episode. In any case, now that we've diagnosed a patient with asthma, it's time to decide what to do with them. As we get into talking about treatment for asthma, we'll start by running through the medications that are out there. But before we get to that, I am obligated as a doctor and a pediatrician to tell you that any medication given through an inhaler should be used with a spacer. When you push down for a dose, the medication comes out way too fast for you to time your breathing correctly. And even if you do manage to get the timing right, most of it is still going to just hit the back of your mouth. Spacers help slow things down and give patients a chance to actually get their asthma medication into their lungs. It adds a little bit of bulk for carrying your rescue medication around, but it's a lot less inconvenient than not being able to breathe. While we're on the subject of medication delivery, an inhaler with a spacer is just as good as a nebulizer for routine dosing. We do use nebulizers for exacerbations, but that's typically when we're giving a lot of medication over an extended period of time. For day-to-day -day use, inhalers get just as much or more medication into the lungs and have the added feature of not requiring a source of electricity or a patient that can spend 15 minutes with a mask attached to his face. Alright, now that we're through that, let's get to medications. The number one class of asthma medications is inhaled beta agonists. Literally everyone with asthma will be prescribed one of these. They act on beta-adrenergic receptors to trigger smooth muscles to relax and open up the airways, basically making the body act like it's getting a sympathetic surge for the fight-or-flight response. Thinking of it that way will also help you remember the side effects. Increased heart rate, trouble sleeping, and sometimes anxiety. Short-acting beta-agonists, mainly albuterol but also levalbuterol or Zopinex, are used for immediate symptom relief. They start working within 15 minutes and generally last anywhere from 2 to 6 hours depending on the patient and how severe the symptoms are. Long-acting beta agonists, or LABAs, have more variable onset times but work for around 12 hours to help provide long-term control. LABAs are only used in combination with inhaled steroids in medications like Simbicort, Dulera, and Advair. Why just in combinations? Because when long-acting beta agonists are used alone, they can actually increase the risk of asthma-related death. The evidence was concerning enough that in 2010, the FDA put a black box warning on all medications that contained LABAs. The warning was only removed from combination products in December of 2017 after inhaler manufacturers completed four clinical trials that included more than 41,000 patients to show that there wasn't a significant risk of harm. Beta agonists are number one for short-term relief, but inhaled corticosteroids are the mainstay for long-term control. There are a lot of different options. Budesonide, fluticasone, and beclomethasone are three of the most common, and studies haven't shown much difference in efficacy at equivalent doses. Although anecdotally, some patients do seem to improve with one formulation versus another. Honestly, the biggest driver I've seen for what gets prescribed is insurance coverage. A few years ago, Medicaid in Wisconsin changed their preferred inhaled steroid, which led to all of us changing our prescribing practices. Whatever type of steroid you end up using, it works by decreasing inflammation in the airways. They do this by influencing DNA transcription, so they can take some time to have their peak effect. The major side effect to watch out for with inhaled steroids is thrush. 
Whether or not your patient uses a spacer, some steroid ends up on the inside of their mouth, which can inhibit the immune system just enough for some yeast to take hold. To avoid the problem, all you need to do is rinse your mouth out or brush your teeth after using the medication. Patients and parents also tend to get concerned about what effect using a steroid for an extended period of time might have on growth. It's a reasonable concern. We know that systemic steroids can decrease adult height, and even though most of the inhaled dose stays in the lungs, some does get systemically absorbed. The best source of information I found on this was a Cochrane review from 2014. They reviewed 25 separate trials that included more than 8,000 kids in total. In their meta-analysis, they found that children who were treated with inhaled corticosteroids grew approximately half a centimeter per year less than untreated kids during the first year of treatment, but that the effect on growth was less pronounced beyond that. The biggest difference in final height found by any of the studies included in the review was 1.6 centimeters, a little more than half an inch. In the end, the people at Cochrane, and most pulmonologists and other doctors, come to the conclusion that the benefit of improved asthma control is more than worth the cost of half an inch of height. Two other medications worth mentioning are theophylline and leukotriene receptor antagonists. Theophylline is in a class of drugs called methylxanthines, which you probably don't need to remember, and is similar to caffeine in terms of its structure and effects. It works a lot like albuterol, relaxing smooth muscles to open airways, but it also has some anti-inflammatory effects. It can either be used in an oral form for maintenance treatment or given through an IV as a bolus or even a continuous infusion for acute exacerbations. As you can probably guess from the name, leukotriene receptor antagonists counter the effects of leukotrienes, which promote bronchoconstriction, inflammation, and mucus production in the lungs. The most well-known version is Montelukast, or Singular, and they're generally dosed as once-daily medications. After that, you can see there are a lot of medications to deal with and it gets even more complicated once you get into trying to decide on dosage. Lucky for us, there's a nice stepwise algorithm for starting and maintaining asthma treatment. When people get started with asthma treatment, the first step is to get a better idea of what their symptoms really look like. To be systematic about it, we look at six different areas. How many days per week they have symptoms, how often their symptoms wake them up at night, how much symptoms limit their activities, how frequently they use their rescue inhaler, their FEV1 as a percentage of predicted on spirometry, and how frequently they have exacerbations. From there, we see if they best fit as intermittent, mild persistent, moderate persistent, or severe persistent asthma, and decide which of the steps of treatment to start with. Intermittent asthma is how we describe the people who have the lowest symptom burden. It used to be called mild intermittent asthma, but since exacerbations can still be severe enough to land patients in the hospital, or even worse, the mild description has been dropped. Patients with intermittent asthma have two days a week or fewer of symptoms and use their rescue medication twice a week or less, wake up two or fewer times a month, and have no activity limitations, an FEV1 greater than 80% predicted, and at most one exacerbation per year. For these patients, you go with step 1 treatment, which is a short-acting beta agonist without any controller medications. Mild persistent asthma is the next step up the symptom ladder. They have symptoms and use their rescue medications more than 2 days a week, but not daily, and wake up at night 3-4 to four times a month. They still have an FEV1 more than 80% predicted, 
but have minor activity limitations and two or more exacerbations per year. In mild persistent asthma, the recommendation is to start a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid along with the as-needed short-acting beta agonist. For moderate persistent asthma, once again, things are a little worse. Patients have symptoms and use their short-acting beta agonists daily and wake up at night once a week or more. They have some more significant activity limitations with an FEV1 between 60 and 80% predicted. The guidelines aren't too specific about exacerbations other than to say that they're more frequent and intense than in mild persistent asthma. For these patients, we move up to step three where the recommended treatment is a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid. Technically, for patients five and older, you can use a combination low-dose inhaled steroid and long-acting beta agonist, but that's not quite as common in practice. You probably have a sense of the pattern by now and guess that severe persistent asthma has it the worst. They have symptoms throughout the day, use their rescue inhaler several times a day, and wake up every night or even more frequently. All of that leads to extreme activity limitation, and if you get them to do spirometry, their FEV1 will be less than 60% predicted. There's a little more variability in how to treat these patients. For kids under 4, you can still start with a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid like you would in moderate persistent asthma. From 5 to 11 years old, a medium-dose inhaled steroid is an option, or you can go with a combination medium-dose steroid and long-acting beta agonist. For patients 12 and older, combination steroid LABA medications are recommended, and you can choose between medium and high dose for the inhaled steroid. All of this initial assessment is meant to give you an idea of where to start with asthma treatment. Obviously, not everybody will fit neatly into these categories. Patients are allowed to have a terrible FEV1 without having limitations on their activity, or to have exacerbations a few times a year without any symptoms in between. Your job as a provider is to use the information you have to choose where to start. You can find decent evidence for treating patients as the worst category they qualify for and stepping down your treatment over time, or for starting lower and escalating as needed. But the important thing is to start treatment and follow up with your patient. During these follow-up appointments, there are a ton of different validated scoring scales to monitor your patient's progress. The Childhood Asthma Control Test, the test for respiratory asthma control in kids or track, and the asthma control questionnaire are just a few of the many options out there. They all give you an idea of how well or poorly controlled your patient's asthma is. If your patient is doing well, congratulations! You can definitely keep the same regimen and maybe even consider stepping down to something less intensive. If not, you need to look for reasons that they aren't doing as well, especially if they're using their medication the way they're supposed to and to decide if you should treat them for an exacerbation before you look at stepping up their maintenance therapy. That should do it for asthma treatment. For take-home points, remember that for initial treatment, you need to get a detailed symptom history, including frequency, nighttime awakenings, exacerbations, rescue medication usage, and activity limitations to decide where your patient falls on the spectrum from intermittent to severe persistent asthma. From there, Choose which combination of short-acting beta agonists, inhaled corticosteroids, and long-acting beta agonists your patient should start with. Most importantly, follow up with your patient as frequently as you need to to make sure they're doing well and no changes need to be made in their treatment. Thanks for sticking with me through two episodes worth of asthma. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you found us. 
You can send any suggestions or other feedback to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peed Soup.